Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So, I was asked this question recently, what was the first concert I ever went to? And it wasn't by choice, but it was at Billy Bob's in Fort Worth, Texas, a honky-tonk. And the artist at that time, I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, was David Allen Coe. We're talking hardcore country. And he sang a song by a guy named Johnny Paycheck called Take This Job and Shove It. And that song, I think it captures the American attitude for work. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Why? Because my woman done left and took all the reasons that I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way because I'm walking out the door, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Work in the American context is something you trudge through to get to a better life. And a lot of people will talk about their job as if I'm working for freedom. You know, I'm working so that I get to that place where I can really enjoy life. And when you kind of survey the songs, I was thinking about the songs I grew up with. And a lot of the songs when it comes to work has a negative connotation. Work is not positive. You know, I just want to bang on a drum all day. I don't want to work. It's negative. But when we open the pages of the Bible, work is incredibly positive. Now, because of sin, there's a toil to our work, but it doesn't take away the value of what God has placed in work. And so today what we're doing is we're going through this series, Discovering Our Identity, which is who we are, and our calling, what God has called us to do. And today we're talking about our outward calling, which is our calling to work. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there may be one in front of you someplace. Look around there. We're going to be in Matthew, the beginning first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start there. And we're going to look at this idea of work. What does Scripture say about work? And what we're going to try to do is to create a biblical theology of work. I know that sounds like a big big word. But a biblical theology is when you take one idea... And you start in the beginning of the Bible and you go all the way through the Bible and you kind of pick up what the fullness of that term is. And that's what we're going to try to do with work. Now, we're not going to be exhaustive, but we're going to start in Genesis, but we're going to start actually Matthew 3. You're okay. Don't go to Genesis yet. You're in the right place if you're in Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to pick up this idea of how does God view what we do? And how does that connect with how you're viewing work? Because sometimes your desires and your calling, they don't line up. Or maybe your desires and your calling, they did line up. You loved your job and now you hate what you do. And there's a weightiness to it. And I think our culture, and check your heart on this, our culture says, you know, your value comes from what you do. And so if you have a good job, a good paying job, and people admire you, your identity, your worth, your significance comes from what you do. The scripture says no. Your identity doesn't come from what you do. Your identity comes from the one you're working for. And we're going to discover that as we unpack this. So let's jump into Matthew 3 first. And again, this is a passage we looked at three times, and it's the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist, 
In Matthew chapter three, his ministry's just beginning. He hasn't done anything. And what we're gonna hear is how the father identifies who he is. So watch this, Matthew three, verse 16. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So in this moment, the Father, God the Father, speaking to God the Son, and he is pronouncing Jesus' identity. And what's interesting about this story in particular is this the first, first thing really that Jesus does. Up to this point, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't called a disciple. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't healed anyone. Jesus hasn't accomplished anything. And yet at the beginning of his life, before he does anything, the father announces his identity and his value. Now, if you'll put up that, that next slide, Bella. The father is establishing two things. At the beginning of his life, his identity is that he is a beloved son. And his value is the father is pleased with him before he does anything. So here's the question. How was Jesus able to live a self-sacrificing life? Because, here's the answer, his value did not come from how people responded to him or what they thought of what he was doing. How was he able to love his enemies? How was he able to, to pray for those who persecuted him? Because his value did not come from the way the world responded to him. Whether you thought it was a good message or a bad message, whether he was popular or unpopular, whether he was rich or poor, his identity was in the Father and his worth came from the Father. And so it allowed him to go out into the world with a humble courage, with a selfless attitude, because I know who I am and I know whose I am. I can go out and my work is not a way of gaining identity or proving that I'm worthwhile. Instead, it's an expression of my love for God. And we see in Jesus' life, he lived out of his identity and his worth came from the Father. And I wanna to suggest to you, that's what the Bible establishes our identity and value. It's not in what we do, it's in who we are working for. And so I'm gonna go back, so let's now go to the first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. And we're gonna kinda of see how this plays out. And the first theme I want you to see is that God works. The God that we worship is a God who works. So Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 2. Listen to what it says. After God had finished his creation, on the seventh day, God finished his, his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. Number two, if you're counting, that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on this day he rested from all his work, all his work that he had done in creation. Three times. God works. Work is a part of God's character and nature. And we don't work because the world is wrong. We work because the world is right. And work is a good thing. We tend to think of work as something that's kind of destroyed by sin and messed up. But work is actually a gift from God to us because it comes from who he is. To work is to be like God. And it's interesting, this word work, when you translate it throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, 
It's sometimes translated worship has the same root meaning, that our work is worship and it's also service. Work is a way of worshiping God and serving one another. And so let's build on this idea of work and go now to Genesis chapter one and look how work shows up in the lives of the first man and woman. So Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man And notice, in his image, in the image of God, he created them, both male and female, he created them. In verse 28, you gotta pause. It says, and he blessed them. Blessing is identity language. That's what the father's doing for Jesus at his baptism. He's announcing his identity and value. That's blessing. Before God tells us what to do, he reminds us of who we are, and he blesses us. This is where your value comes from. Your value comes from me and my love for you. God blesses us, and then he gives us instructions. Hey, here's how I want you, with that identity, value, and worth, here's how I want you to move out into the world. And this is called the cultural mandate in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the ground. One of the key words in there is this word dominion. And it means to rule. And the big picture in the first book of the first chapter of the Bible is that God created us to rule on his behalf because we're created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God can mean a lot of things. But one aspect of it is that we represent God over creation. God created it. We're supposed to work and care for it in a way that reflects who he is, right? When you're working for somebody, you're supposed to represent that company, that boss, their values, and how they wanna move out into the world. The same thing is true for us. We represent God, his values, his heart, his character, and we rule on his behalf caring for what God has given us. And in this in theological terms, it's called the cultural mandate, That's what verse 28 is. It's God's instructions to us that we are to share, and listen to this, in the dynamic work of the ongoing creation. We are to share in the dynamic work of the ongoing creation, that when God created the garden, we think of it as perfect, but it was perfectly incomplete. The garden wasn't perfect in that everything was set, because why would we need to work? The garden was perfectly incomplete, and it was perfectly incomplete, created for our giftings, our abilities to step in to represent God's character in a world that needs an ongoing work of creation. That's what God's called us to do. And we kind of see this play out in Genesis chapter 2. So let's go back to chapter 2. See, chapter 1, created in God's image. That's your dignity and value. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, and we see a description of what the garden was like. And so Genesis 2, verse 8, and the Lord planted the Garden of Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first, the Pishon, 
to the one that flowed around the whole land, the hard word to pronounce, halaba or something like that, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. And, and uh, for a dyslexic, this is really hard. <laughs> that word, bellium, bellium, that's it. Onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river, the Gehon, it's the one that flowed around the whole land of the Cush. And the name of the third river, the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then verse 15, here's the key verse. And the Lord took the man, meaning also the woman, and put him in the garden of Eden to do two things. To work. Remember, work means to worship, to serve, and to keep it. See, this language is so fascinating when you study Realize Moses wrote the first book of the Bible. Moses kind of grew up around the concept of a temple, a place where you worshiped God. And Eden is described through Moses as a temple. The first garden was the place where you met God. In the ancients, they would call it uh, a thin place. A thin place was that place where the creation and the creator would meet. And Adam and Eve met God in the garden and it was described as the first temple and this language of work and care for is exactly the same language you find in the book of Deuteronomy when it describes what priests do in the temple. A priest is supposed to work and to care for it. And so Adam and Eve are like these royal figures who work and care for what God has created. And I love, if you need a reference or you need a resource, a book you want to read on work, because churches don't talk a lot about this. We need to talk more. Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Excellent book. A lot of the thoughts for this come out of that book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. And here's how Tim Keller defines work. Tim Keller describes work as rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. So just think about that. Rearranging the raw materials. When we read, and keep that definition up there, Genesis 2... What was it describing but a list of raw materials? Look at all these rivers. We have onyx. We have some word I can't pronounce. We have gold. We have stone. We have fruit trees. We have living plants and animals. What it's describing are the raw materials that God himself has created and loves. And then he places us in that space that is perfectly imperfect so that we might use our gifts, talents, and abilities to take those raw materials, whether that's people or engineering, whether that's programming, whether that's healing and doctoring or teaching, all of that is you're taking raw materials, you're forming them together. For what purpose? To worship God and to serve others, for the flourishing of humanity and the blessing of creation. That's what work is supposed to be. Not take this job and shove it, I ain't working here no more. Work is not about you. And understand your vocation, and we're going to get to this word. It comes from the Latin word vocare, or vocare. Yeah, that's what it is. And it means a calling. And we're going to discover that God's going to call you in three different directions to himself, but he's also going to call you out into the world. And so one more passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 and we see this partnership in a very simple way in Genesis 2.19 between God and humanity. Watch this. And now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
Whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. Now, what's happening? It's a partnership. Can God not name the animals? Of course he can. But see, there's an intentionality in God to use us in a way in his creation to accomplish what he wants to do. And so in that Genesis 2.15, we see the word work, which means worship and serve, but you also see this word keep. And keep is an important word. And I'd say the evangelical church has abandoned the keeping side and we've just focused on the working side. Because see, to keep creation means to guard it. It means to protect it. It means to work in such a way that you're caring not just for the flourishing of humanity, but the flourishing of creation itself. Martin Luther has this great quote, and it it seems so strange to me when I first read this, but he said, if I knew tomorrow was the end of the world, meaning that God was coming back, what would you do if it was the end of the world? God's coming back. Martin Luther would plant an apple tree. That seemed kind of strange, doesn't it? Why? Because when Jesus returns, the earth is going to worship. It's going to rejoice. Romans 8 says right now that sin not only affects us and separates us from God, it separates the rivers from God, the plants from God, the sky from God, the birds from God. And creation is groaning for what purpose? For the sons of God For us, daughters and sons of God, to be revealed, for Christ to come back. And when Christ comes back, what he's going to do is not just heal us. He's healing everything. And we're supposed to work in a way that kind of prefigures what's coming. If God's going to heal creation, we should work with creation in a way that's bringing healing and restoration. We shouldn't just strip the land. And it's so crazy within the church that we exchange God's biblical mandate to care for creation for a socio-political agenda, a temporal political agenda. And we fall, right, environmentally. I'm a leftist, I'm a rightist, I'm whatever. Christians shouldn't be that way because our mandate doesn't come from culture. It doesn't come from my political party. It doesn't come from this scientist or that scientist. It comes from God himself who has called me not only to work creation, but to work it in a way that leads to the flourishing of creation. And Christians, more than anyone else, should be those who protect and care for what God has created. And we don't just use the land to bless ourselves, but we use it in a way that leads to human flourishing, right, to serve one another, but also in a way that guards and protects. And so church, sometimes the culture sleeps, kind of seeps into our mentality, doesn't it? And we leave behind God's mandate of work and how we should work, and we adopt a very cultural way that my identity and my value comes from my work. And God say, no, it comes from me. And here's how I want you to engage in the world. And so what I wanna do just quickly is we're gonna go to the end. So we saw how it begins, right? Our identity and value comes from God. Now let's see how the story ends and where work ends up in the last book. So let's go to the last book, Genesis. Genesis. That's the first one. The last one's called Revelation. Revelation 22, the last chapter here. Revelation 22, verse 1. And here's what we find. And the angel, and, and think of the Garden of Eden as we read this. The same kind of language is there. Revelation 22, verse 1. And then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, so it's abundant, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. There's a lot of language in the new heavens and the new earth that reflects the Garden of Eden. But what we see in Revelation 22 is the result of our work. There were no cities in Genesis 1 and 2, right? But in Revelation 22, there's streets. There's cities. If you go on and read the whole chapter, there's art, musicians, you're there. There's artists, designers, there's cultures, there's food. It's not all gonna be one food, guys. We're gonna still work. There's gonna be an opportunity to continue to work on God's behalf because we see in Revelation 22 the evidence of our work and it's not done away with. Work is still there. And the good part of our work is, is flowing out. We see that God redeems work. And so today, we're supposed to work in such a way that's pointing to what God's gonna do in the end. That your good work, when you work not just for yourself, but for the glory of God and the benefit of others, you are restoring creation back to its original state. Now, you may not feel that way. I mean, sometimes work is hard, and because of sin, it's a toil, isn't it? It's a toil. And sometimes for some of you, this is the hard part, and this is a part of our American culture. You want your desires to line up with your calling, right? That's the dream. What I want to do is what I'm doing. Do you know in the Bible, that's rarely what happens. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Peter didn't want to be martyred. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Moses did not want to go back to Egypt. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue a vocation that lines up with your desires. When you, those two are together, it's great. But the value of your work doesn't come from the fact that your desires and your vocation line up. The value of the work is the one you're working for. The value of the work comes from the vision of what you're doing of how you are working in a way that's leading people to see how God's gonna restore all of creation and make it right once again. So how does that line up? How are we doing? Does that line up with how you view your work? Let me read this quote from Martin Luther. I think this, is, this may help us. He says, the work, the work of monks and priests However holy and arduous they be, do not differ one bit in the sight of God from the work of the rustic laborer in the field. Do you believe that? Or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all work, all works are measured before God by faith alone. There is no sacred and secular divide. If you're an accountant, and you're working to the glory of God, the value of your work is equal unto my work. My work is no different than your work because all of us are working out of faith in God to worship him and to serve others. There is no sacred and secular divide because often what people will say is, you know, I'm an engineer and how I bring value to my work is I become an evangelist at my place of work, which is good, but that doesn't add greater value to your work. You're just living as a Christian in the place that you are. Your work is already valuable whether you share your faith or not because your work matters to God. Your work is a way of serving God and serving the world. 
There is no sacred and secular divide, but everything is valuable to God. So how do we work this out? Just real quickly. The Puritans have a great vocation, a great theology of work. And they divided work into three distinct areas that are true simultaneously for all of us. You ready for this? And hopefully this will help you apply it because some of you may be in that place where you need to make a change. You're wondering, what is God? Maybe you're young enough and you're like a lot of people today that are in college that don't realize this is a privilege. It's a privilege to be stressed out about what you do. Right? Can we get an amen to that? Right? The rest of the world does not have the privilege of being stressed out because they have so many options. If you have a lot of options, hey, thank God for that. Thank God for that. So how do you make a decision about your specific calling? Here's the first thing the Puritan said, is that we first have, and the order is important, we first have a higher calling, or they would call it the highest calling. And the highest calling you have is to communion with God, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we talked about last week, Ephesians chapter 4 that my life is in devotion to God. And what does that mean? My identity and my value is right there. My identity and value is not in what I'm doing. It's in who God is, who he's made me to be, and how he sees me. So when I walk in the world, out in the world, I walk out in the world like Jesus, self-serving and sacrificing, because I don't need you to affirm me. I have God's affirmation. That's your highest calling. You live out of your highest calling. Now, they also say we have a common calling. And the common calling is to obey God. It's all the commands in Scripture. And the common calling is true to everyone. The highest calling, the common calling is true to everyone, no matter when you lived or who you are or what you've done. That God calls us to be obedient to him, to love our neighbor, to pray for those who persecute us, to not commit adultery, to not commit murder. And see, it's when we have our highest calling, communion with God, and we're in obedience to God, trying to follow Christ, to be with him, to become like him. Out of those two flow our specific calling, which is called your vocation. Your vocation is how we partner with God in the ongoing creation. And some of you are, are healers. And some of you heal the earth. Some of you heal bodies. Some of you are designers, designers of clothes, programs, buildings. Some of you are builders. Some of you are teachers. Some of you, all of those giftings are your way of partnering with God in the ongoing work of creation. And one of the reasons we don't have a very robust view of a theology of work is we do not have a robust view of the practical work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the two are connected. See, when you read throughout Scripture, it's often the Holy Spirit that moves people from one place to another. And so you look in Acts chapter 13, it says the Holy Spirit came upon the community and they said, set apart Paul and set apart Barnabas for the work I've been called to do. And that, wouldn't that be great? Holy Spirit just showed up. Well, the Holy Spirit wants to show up. And can I say, through your highest calling and your common calling, he's showing up, but you're not listening. If you don't put communion with God first, but you put your specific calling first, it's gonna take the whole thing out of whack. You're gonna be frustrated. He's gonna constantly try to find your value in what you're doing instead of finding your value in who God is. And when your value's in who God is, here's the beautiful thing. Guys, he's gonna give you the grace to endure the hard moments when you have to choose what you didn't choose. Can we rewind that? There are times where you have to choose what you didn't choose. You know, somebody recently asked me, you know, how did you know, you know, that Melissa was the one? And I said, you know, I didn't. My 23-year-old Jason knew that. 
and I'm living with the consequences of that decision. And I'm happy about it. But in marriage, there's an aspect which you have to choose what you didn't choose. Because when you get married, you have a vision, right? This is how it's going to go. It's going to be awesome. We're going to kick it. Live in life. And then you find out the marriage isn't what you thought it would be. I got a job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow it up, right? You got a boss. I have to choose what I didn't choose. I have to choose, once again, a reality I didn't choose. But when your highest calling is in place and your heart is on God, it doesn't mean it's easy. And you have a common calling. I'm living out of my identity in Christ. I now choose to worship God in that place because my worth and value is not coming from what everybody else is saying. It's coming from my higher calling. And you start to get clarity. And if you're not there right now, you know what you need to do? The next right thing. Don't worry about tomorrow. How you discover your calling, you know what to do today. And if you pursue God and you pursue that common obedience, God will begin over time to open the next door and the next door and the next door. And hopefully with a community of people around you that love you, they'll help you to see your gifting, your talents and abilities so that we might work in a way that glorifies God and it serves the community around us. That's God's vision for work. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Hey, as we conclude the service this morning, we're gonna celebrate uh, communion together. And communion is an opportunity for us to remember our highest calling. And our highest calling is that the reason God accepts us is not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so if you didn't grab the elements, that's why people are moving around right now. They're getting up to grab the elements. The elements are available up front. You can come and grab them. They're also available in the back. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna hold those elements together and we're gonna receive the bread first and then we'll receive the, the grape juice second. And we wanna spend that time just in reflection. I don't know what God's stirring your heart right now or what he's doing, what he's teaching you, but in a time of reflection, just simply to speak back to him. For some of you, it could just be simply say, you know, Father, accept me through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. I wanna know you. I want the Holy Spirit to live in me, forgive me and come and dwell in my life. For others of you, it may be just a confession. God, I'm frustrated in my job. I'm frustrated in my work. I need to choose what I didn't choose. Give me the grace. Give me the strength. And, and, and after the service, I wanna ask the prayer team to come up. And if you're in that place, you don't have to say anything. They'll just pray over you and allow God's blessing and strength to overshadow you. Hey, let's, let's spend some time in reflection together.
and God bless them. Father, would we, through the power of the Spirit, receive the blessing of our Creator and the one that through Jesus Christ we now have the privilege of calling Father. Father, we confess our sins to you, Father. We confess our frustrations, our brokenness, our sadness, our loneliness. And Father, would you fill those places? Fill those places you were intended to fill from the beginning, but we're filling it with so much stuff from the world that there's no room for you. We, we cast those things out, cast off the old man, and we invite the new man, the new woman, created in the image of Christ to flourish in us. That in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, simple bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's receive it together in remembrance of him. same way after supper he took a cup and he said this cup it represents the new covenant meaning the new relationship that's established through Jesus sacrifice through his blood we receive it together in remembrance of him